Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. The podcast you're about to listen to is part of a six-part virtual webinar series entitled Palestine and Israel, Key Issues for the 118th Congress. The series took place during February and March of 2023 and was convened jointly by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute's Palestinian Affairs Program. In real time, the series was presented for members of Congress and congressional staff only, but all six sessions were so good and the issues and viewpoints they covered so important that we're now releasing the entire series to the public. The other five sessions are also available via the Occupied Thoughts podcast, and you can find the video versions of the entire series on our website at www.fmep.org, along with resources related to each discussion. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the session. Good morning and welcome. Uh, this is our second session now of our six-part congressional briefing series on Israel-Palestine, uh, key issues for the 118th Congress. I'm Khaled Al-Gindi, director of the Middle East Institute's program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. And I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this series with uh, my friend and colleague, Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thanks, Khaled. I'm very happy to be here today as well. Today's session is entitled Extremism in Israel, which seems like a timely topic here. Uh, we're going to be examining the rise of far-right extremist political forces in Israel, culminating in the new Israeli government that most people are reading and hearing about now every day. To dig into all of these issues, we have with us today an outstanding panel of experts, and we are honored they have joined us. I'm going to introduce them here very briefly in alphabetical order. If you watch the chat, we will have um, links or their longer bios will show up in the chat or links to them. So first we have Amjad Iraqi. Amjad is an editor and writer at Plus972 Magazine. He is also a policy analyst at Ashebeka, the Palestinian Policy Network, and was previously an advocacy coordinator at Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel. So welcome, Amjad. Uh, second, we have Professor and Rabbi Shaul Magid. Um, Shaul is Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College, where I was very happy to actually appear with him or see him recently. Uh, his new book is entitled Meyer Kahane, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, which was published by Princeton University Press in October 2021, and I recommend it highly. Uh, welcome, Shaul. And finally, we have Natasha Roth Rowland. Natasha is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Virginia, where I think she's actually going to be defending her PhD imminently, like in the weeks to come. Uh, she's a former editor, editor at 972 Magazine, and her research focuses on the Israeli and American Jewish far right across the 20th century. So I'm going to just dig right in. Amjad, I'm going to start with you. Uh, so as probably everyone knows, last November, um, in the fifth election held in Israel since April 2019, Israelis voted for a new far-right government headed by, once again, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, you know, over the years, we have seen successive Israeli governments moving more and more to the right. That's been a feature of every election campaign. Um, this new government is being described by pretty much everyone as the most extreme or far-right in Israel's history. So I want to start off today by asking you to explain really what those terms mean in this context. What is right wing? What is extremist when it comes to a government? And, and specifically with this new government, can you talk about to what degree it is fundamentally different 
from previous ones, or to what degree we're just seeing a continuation of a trend, maybe more overtly, you know, masks off. Um, and 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 how did it how did it get to this point? Uh, first, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Khaled, for this uh, opportunity to speak to uh, uh, staffers and members here. Um, in terms of how we got here, there's naturally a lot of complex factors to keep in mind, uh, but I would kind of tell a very, kind of, uh, let's say, a simple version of the story. So one of the pivotal um, sort of periods that has really kind of set the trend for this rightward shift over the past two decades is the experience of the Second Intifada, which was an uprising uh, and uh, in turn a uh, uh, phase of repression from 2000 to about 2004, 2005. Uh, some of you might know this already. It was a, a period of um, both Palestinian suicide bombings, uh, as well as a, a very intensive and brutal Israeli military uh, invasions and incursions and military operations um, in the occupied territories, along with protests and demonstrations that happened throughout. Um, and there's a lot to unpack from this particular uh, from this particular period, but on the Israeli side, I mean, as much as on the Palestinian side, but for the Israeli side, the experience of this intifada as one that was primarily sort of uh, characterized by suicide bombings and extreme violence uh, from this Oslo era of the Oslo Accords era of the 1990s, and this switch to, uh, of the feeling that there was an idea that we were heading towards peace, and now, and in the Israeli narrative, we were rewarded with violence. There, this isn't. This is a very straightforward kind of analysis of how the Israelis interpret this. But basically, from this traumatic experience, um, you had Israeli uh, right-wing politicians and media pundits and thinkers begin to try to uh, take this trauma and sort of begin to set the seeds for this uh, this anti, you know, it's kind of like anti-leftist doctrine, saying that the Zionist left in many ways allowed this to happen and we can no longer trust the Oslo doc, uh, the Oslo process. We cannot trust the Palestinians and actually we are better off uh, having sort of a might is right uh, kind of doctrine, which has always existed in many, many respects. But for the Zionist right, uh, there became this consolidation and this concerted effort over the years to begin establishing its dominance uh, in what was previously a bit more of a contest with the Zionist left. Um, and this rightward lurch has been facilitated by many things, but one of them is very much the impunity with and, and the ability to get away with pushing the envelope. This is one, really one of the biggest lessons and experiences of the Netanyahu years since 2009, all the way till now, that Netanyahu, through changes in the, uh, in the legislative structures and the laws passed by the Knesset, in the way that the government would pursue certain policies against Palestinians and other kinds of anti-democratic anti uh, uh, laws and, and policies that the, he found out that the more that he could push, he actually could get away with it increasingly. And, and this is part and parcel with the fact that the international community was no longer applying the same pressure that it used to in the 1990s. And so for, from an Israeli standpoint, there was no reason to shift away from that rightward trend. And this is why you even have end up, end up having Zionist left parties adopt more and more right-wing positions. And so the last couple of elections that we've had are not a conflict between the Zionist left and the Zionist right. They're actually a conflict within, Zion, within the Israeli Zionist right. Um, and it's, so it's, in, it's almost internal uh, battle. Uh, and what's different about this particular kind of government right now is that the fault lines of what's dividing these right-wing parties is, a, is a much more clear. There is all for the, so just to kind of put it very broadly, there's almost like a, 
an idea of a secular liberal right, or uh, what they define themselves as a secular liberal right, versus a very clear religious illiberal right. And this is really where the fault lines come in insofar as Israelis are concerned. And But just to kind of quickly, just wrap this up very quickly, but that for Palestinians, this is very much an Israeli-centric narrative. For Palestinians, as far as they're concerned, even if you were to put it quite, let's say if you were to take the Labour Party as the last sort of uh, remnant of the Zionist left, 106 out of 120 Knesset seats are taken up by right-wing parties. If you define the Israeli right in terms of their policies vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians in occupied territories, in terms of the occupation, in terms of maintaining racial privilege over Palestinian citizens. So that's almost 90% of the parliament representing the right insofar as Palestinians are, are concerned. And there's a lot to unpack, but uh, this is just kind of set the stage on what on this landscape that we're facing. Uh, thanks, uh, Amjad, for, for helping us set the scene. Um, I'd like to turn to you, Natasha, to uh, help flesh out the picture a little bit more. Um, one of the uh, more extreme members of this coalition government uh, by the name of Bezalel Smotrich of the religious Zionism bloc, uh, who's actually one of the most extreme members in this government, uh, was appointed to the powerful post of finance minister and also has authority uh, over settlements and Palestinians in the occupied West Bank as well. Uh, last month, an audio recording uh, surfaced of Smotrich saying uh, to his supporters, quote, I may be a far right person, a homophobe, racist, fascist, but my word is my bond. Um, so there isn't really an attempt to, uh, to, to hide where, uh, where they stand. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on in, in that statement there. And I'd like to ask you to unpack it for us. Um, tell us a little bit about who Smotrich is, uh, what he stands for, and what is the significance of this kind of a statement uh, or these kinds of statements, um, given his his current uh, role as one of the more powerful ministers in the government? Sure. Uh, first of all, it's it's great to be with you um, all here for this discussion. Thank you, Halad and Lara, for setting up. It's a really important uh, uh, panel topic that we have today. Um, I'll pass... Smotrich's statement in, in, a, in a minute, because there's some important context that I, I, I want to add into it. But just for a bit of background, um, Batalan Smotrich is the head, as you said, of the Religious Zionist Party. It's one of the most far-right parties uh, in the current uh, Israeli ruling coalition. It's not the most far-right party. I would say that's Otmi Odit, or Jewish Power, which is headed by Itamar Ben-Gvir, which, as we know, ran with Smotrich's party as a kind of unified electoral bloc won an unprecedented hall of seats and then the parties kind of split back up once they actually got into the coalition and once they got their you know very sweeping demands from Netanyahu. Um, Smotrich has been in politics for a number of years now he you know before that he's he, he was kind of a bit of an agent provocateur he he was arrested um, as part of the anti-Gaza disengagement protests in 2005 um, allegedly over a, a plot involving explosives and since he's come into government he's had or, or, you know, the opposition, wherever he's been sitting, he's had, you know, a track record of very um, provocative, racist, homophobic, sexist comments and policy proposals. He's described himself as a proud homophobe. He's protested pride parades. He's said that Jewish and Arab 
maternity wards in hospitals should be segregated. And he's now, as you said, Khaled, you know, come into this position where he really has unprecedented power, not only with the finance ministry, but also the sweeping powers that he's been handed uh, within the occupied West Bank. Now, in terms of his positions, he's pro-annexation. He wants to expand the settlements. He's in favor of religious law, you know, across the country, even if he's aware of the fact that that's not actually on the table right now, as much as, uh, you know, powerful segments of the Israeli government are pushing for it. Uh, he's anti-Palestinian. And in terms of what he said about being a fascist, a homophobe, a racist, but I'm a man of my word, you know, this was a leaked recording of him speaking to, I think, a businessman who is a supporter of his. And there's been some speculation in press coverage as to whether he was sort of saying, particularly the fascist piece, a bit tongue in cheek. This is not this wouldn't be the first time that a member of the Israeli far right has almost tried to re, not reclaim the word fascism, but apply it to themselves as a way to mock their you know, perceived left wing critics who apply uh, the, the label to them. I don't know whether that was his intent. I'm not inside his head. I also think it's rather academic because his worldview speaks for itself. Um, but I do want to add some context to what he said, because for him, the bottom line of what he was saying was, my supporters don't care if I act against the LGBTQ community, because I am keeping my word about not sitting with Palestinians in the government. So the subtext of what he's saying is, I can act against other non-dominant communities, provided I stick to my word about punishing Palestinians. That was the context. And another comment that he made was very, which was very revealing, was saying, you know, if you don't force me, you know, you, I suppose, as liberal critics, if you don't force me to uh, not be able to eat kosher, then I won't, quote, stone the gays. That was his actual words. So, you know, there isn't anything that different that he said in the leaked recording to what he said in public before. And I think the less, you know, it was very headline grabbing, obviously, because the statements were so succinct and sounded so extreme. But I think the lesson to take away is that what we heard in that recording doesn't really tell us anything that we didn't already know about Smotrich from his life in the public eye over the last number of years. Thanks, Natasha. I think for, for US audiences, that, that quote, the leaked quote is actually pretty powerful. Partly because I think there is less understanding of how sort of brazen this particular crop of politicians are about their views, and there's a certain amount of well, if you're if you're saying they're you know misogynist or racist or homophobic, then you're just casting aspersions on people, and you can't demonstrate, or you have to you know somehow justify this as an anti-Semitism or anti-Israel, as opposed to this is what they openly embrace as their identity. It's a it's it's a it's a weird sort of dynamic, I think, on this side of the pond. Um, so, Shaul, I want to pick up actually on something that Natasha said at the beginning of her comment, which is she mentioned that there are more extreme elements in this government, and she mentioned um, the Jewish Power Party, which uh, I want to I want to talk to you about that. So, another prominent extremist who's been in the news a lot, even the English language news, is Itzimar Ben Gvir of the Jewish Power Party. That party is an offshoot of the Kahanist movement, which I mentioned you've written about. Uh, that movement was founded by Rabbi Meir Kahane, who was an American. I think we can call him an agitator. Is maybe a nice word. Um, who brought what were um, racist politics, and we'll call them racist because the Israeli government called them racist and he was actually banned from, from politics. Uh, he brought them to Israel um, from Brooklyn in the 1980s where he served in the Knesset and then lost that. Uh, so Ben Gavir 
under this government was appointed to the powerful position of Minister of National Security, where he has authority over police and border guards in both Israel and the occupied territories. So I want you to talk to us about Ben Gavir and about his party, who they are, what they stand for, what they say they stand for, not what we say they stand for. And, and you've written about the ideology of the Jewish Power Party and called it a mix of messianism and militant pragmatism. And I want you to, to sort of flesh that out for us and what that means when you've got someone with that ideology who's in this position with these kinds of powers. Thank you. Thank you, Lara and Khalid and, and Amjad and Natasha and everybody else that's listening for inviting me. So Ben Gavir, yeah, he's now, he's all of a sudden become probably the most uh, well-known, certainly the most talked about politician in Israel. And he, he has a bit of a history. He's been on the radar screen in Israel for a long time. It's somewhat ironic that he's a national, he's, a, he's a, has a, in charge of national security because when he was of army age, uh, the army actually refused to induct him into the army because they felt he was too dangerous. And for someone who has been in the Israeli army, I can tell you that they will take almost anybody. So the fact that he was he was dangerous enough for the army to not want to give him a gun tells us something very interesting about him. Now he's actually in charge of national security. So there's something that's very, very, very somewhat ironic and dangerously so about it. So Ben Gavir uh, was part of you know what was called the Kahana Youth. Uh, Kahana was an American who immigrates to Israel in 1971, and he was radicalized in the 1960s around the culture wars and the race wars, and, fa and found the Jewish Defense League in, in 1968 to protect the elderly Jews from violence by, um, by minorities in these frontier neighborhoods. And then he takes that kind of cultural war mentality to Israel and kind of the African-Americans in, in the inner cities of American uh, of Americans, uh, urban centers just becomes the Arabs. There's a kind of a translation to that. Now, Ben Gavir is the first generation of, of, of Kahanists who, are, who emerge from Israeli society. And I think the important distinction here is that Kahana really was never that successful in Israel, partly because he was always thinking in American categories, certainly American categories of the late 1960s, 1970s. Whereas people like Ben Gavir are really homegrown Israelis, they're born and raised there. Um, he's from a Kurdistani family, so he's from a Mizrahi family, and in a certain way, he's really very, very integrated into Israeli society. Now, what, what, what are their goals? Well, I think one of the interesting things about uh, that I've written about in, in a Haaretz op-ed of the difference between Kahana and someone like Ben Gavir is that Kahana really was a revolutionary. He wanted to overthrow the government. He wanted to overthrow the state. He didn't give any value to the secular state whatsoever. Ben Gavir is not a revolutionary. He's a lawyer. He's very interested in incremental change. He wants to transform the government from the inside rather than overthrow it from the outside. So in a way, it was much easier for Israeli society to deal with someone like Kahana. As you said, he was ousted with the racism law that was passed by the Knesset, both on the left and the right, by the way, in 1986 and then upheld by the Supreme Court in 1987. That law could easily be used for Ben Gvir, but it could never pass the Knesset today. And I think that's what's important in terms of what, what both Amjad and Natasha said, is that the Israeli political culture has moved so far to the right that that which they outlawed in 1986 
they would not have the votes to outlaw in 2023. And so the issue is really much more than Ben Gvir. It's Ben Gvir's success is because Israeli society has become so uh, right-leaning. And, and by right-leaning, it's interesting because left and right means a lot of different things in American politics. It means a lot of different things in, in Israeli politics. But um, one of the things that's so striking, for example, about the present protests against judicial reform in the country that I'm sure many of you have seen, what's absent in the protests is really protesting against the occupation. They're protesting against uh, citizens' rights, they're protesting against judicial reform. It seems like the occupation has become so normalized within Israeli society that they've almost tired of talking, been tired of talking about it. And in certain cases, as we've seen on video, when people raise Palestinian flags or, or, or chant against the occupation, they're very quickly muted in the protests because the protests are trying to gather a large contingency of people on the left, people on the center left, center right, and even at some on the right. But if you bring up the occupation, you lose most of those people. So Ben Gavir is kind of fitting into that political culture. And in a sense, what he's trying to do is to create Kahanist policies that are less uh, abrasive than Kahana, uh, as a, 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 an important essay by a, a friend of mine, Tomer Persico, that he pu published in Haaretz was called that Ben Gavir is Kahana for the whole family. There's a kind of a normalization of the radicality of, Kah of Kahanism in Ben Gavir. And the interesting point, I just want to end with this, we would think that someone like Ben Gavir, his base of support is really the, the settler movement and the settler youth, but it's really not the case. For I'll give you one example. The Democratic High School in Haifa, which is a secular democratic school, when they had a mock election, 40% of the vote went to Ben Gvir. So we're talking about a youth culture that is secular, that is not settler oriented, and yet the message of Ben Gvir is basically the occupation is over, we're going to annex the territories, this is a Jewish state, and it's a Jewish state before it's a democratic state. And I think that's where we are. And I think, you know, I think we, we in America have to pay close attention to what the implications of that might mean long term. Uh, thanks, Shaul. Uh, I, I'd like to stay with you for a moment and ask you to, uh, to, to dig a little bit deeper on this question of the receptivity of Kahanism in, in Israeli society. So, so you did a, a great job painting the picture of the differences between someone like Ben Gvir and 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 his uh, his sort of ideological uh, forebear, right, uh, Mayer Kahana. Um, but but is it is the reason that Kahanism or Kahanist ideas uh, have become so normalized uh, or pervasive? Is that primarily because Ben Gvir is not seen as someone who totally wants to overturn the system? Or is there something else in Israeli society that just allows kind of more fertile soil for those ideas to, to take hold? Um, is it, for example, a reflection of increased religiosity? Uh, you talked about secular areas uh, who, who are still supporting uh, Ben Gvir in, in high proportions. Um, what what is the kind of ideological or sociological uh, framework for um, why these groups have become more 
uh, more prominent. Uh, as we saw, groups, Kahanist groups like Kahanakai and, and Kah were, uh, were considered too extreme for Israeli politics. And yet you wrote in, in 2019, years before this current government, um, you wrote an article entire, entitled uh, Kahana One. What does that mean, that Kahana One? Okay, I mean, I want to say something that that I'm really just uh, as a framework. I think there, I think there's a, a lot of ways one could criticize it, but I think there's some there's some heuristic work that it does. I think part of the Zionist project and part of the success of the Zionist project from its beginning, from its pre-state beginning, is that for a variety of reasons having to do with the you know the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and so on, that Jews increasingly became tired of living under the aegis of the Gentiles. I think what's happening now is that, uh, and I, this is gonna, I'm gonna link this to your question, is that to some degree, a lot of Israeli Jews are simply just tired of living with Arabs and they're tired of the occupation. They're just tired of it, right? We talked about the first intifada, the second, for whatever reason, right or wrong, all, they're just they're just tired of the story. They're tired of the conflict, and so in a way, this new government gives a perfect out because by these judicial reforms, it gives those people who consider themselves moderates or center left another reason to protest, right? Because they don't want to protest against the occupation because they're tired of it, and and I think that part of that that fatigue has created a certain kind of normalization where they they believe by the they a large swath of Israeli society believes there's no solution to this conflict and there's no way in which the Arab population as they see them now I'm not speaking about the Arab Palestinian population but as they are depicted within Israeli society there's no way that they're not going to hate us so in a sense this opens up the space for these kinds of radical ideas to come in and to say, okay, in 1985, Israel added to the basic law that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. A lot of people think that was in the Declaration of Independence. That was not in the Declaration of Independence. That was added to the basic law in 1985. Kahana comes along and says, there's no such thing as a Jewish and democratic state. There's a Jewish state, but there's a democratic state. And the reason that Kahana says this is because for Kahana, dem democracy is something that he understands from America. Like the only kind of democracy is a liberal democracy, meaning everyone is equal. Everyone that lives in the country, everyone that is a citizen of the state is equal. And Kahana says, if that's the case in Israel, you don't have a Jewish state. So Kahana basically calls the Jewish and democratic state a schizophrenic idea. Now, most Israelis are still very wed to this notion of a Jewish and democratic state that is being eroded over time. And given the choice, increasing numbers of Israeli Jews will say, if there's a choice between being in a Jewish state and a democratic state, let it be a Jewish state. And in a sense, this is what Kahana was saying in the 1970s when he, when he, when he moves to Israel. Of course, he was a radical figure. He was far too radical for the Israeli uh, political culture at the time, which remember was still left wing, was still basically socialist. But as time went on, as time went on after 53 years, after a 53 year occupation and all of the things that went on with that, I think increasingly Israeli Jews are just saying we want to be done with it. 
We want to be done with the occupation. We want to be done with this conflict. And Ben Gavir is coming in and saying, okay, I have a solution. We annex the territories. We don't give the Palestinian citizenship. Okay, so we won't be a democracy. Okay, we'll be, we'll be a bad democracy. We'll be a half democracy. Or as some Israeli legal theorists say, we'll be a, um, a, an ethnic democracy. And this is becoming more and more common fare among not Israelis on the right, but Israelis in the center, right? It's important to note, given the makeup of the Knesset now, there is not one party in the Knesset, either in the coalition or in the opposition, that's openly in favor of two states. The only party that had two states as its basic platform was the merits party that didn't even make it into the opposition. So that I think Amjad is right. There's no right and left in Israel. There's right and far right. And that's, that's not only, that's not an anomaly. That's the way the last five elections have gone. This, is, this election that has, has, has brought us to this place is not an anomaly. This is where the Israeli political culture is at this point. And I think we have to really consider what that means in terms of our relationship to it. Thanks, Joel. And, and Natasha, I wanna come back to you and I wanna sort of pick up on a, a direction this is going with, with Joel's response. Another piece um, of, of analysis that I think often is used to describe the current moment is, is, is it, it, it invokes the term Jewish supremacy. Um, I think my own analysis is that we have reached a tipping point where the concept of a Jewish democratic state has now collapsed under the weight of, the, of its own contradictions, right? Um, and you, you have, I, I want you to talk about this. I want you to talk about this term Jewish supremacy and, and for Americans, I think this is something relevant in terms of thinking about what it's like when you have people in power where all of the, the normal paths, to the, if, if the normal course of action to support a democracy would ultimately require them to give up privileges that they don't want to give up. And, and, and that's really where we are when we think about people protesting and not caring about democracy as it applies to other people, only their own equities are involved, or not caring, just wanting occupation to be over and not caring how it's solved. So can you talk about this? And can you also talk about how this idea of proud supremacy, um, unabashed supremacy and protection of privileges in Israel fits into a broader, what I think is increasingly seen around the world is more of an extremist right-wing agenda, whether it's anti-LGBTQ or it's open misogyny or racism or anti-intellectualism, contempt for experts. This idea basically, which is to say, I'm anti-woke and I'm proud of it and how that fits into where things are today in Israel. Sure, that's a really important question. Um, speaking to Jewish supremacy, I actually want to take a step back and just kind of um, establish a baseline for, for what we mean by supremacy, because I think the two, you know, Jewish supremacy taken as a concept is just, I think people immediately have a reaction to the phrase and it, it can make people uncomfortable, I think, for historical reasons that are understandable. So it's really important to establish what we mean when we talk about Jewish supremacism and Jewish supremacy. And for me, when I talk about it, I'm really talking about a system, a political and social set of structures and infrastructures that privilege one group over another, and then the intersecting religious, social, and political beliefs that kind of undergird that system. So that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the term Jewish supremacy. And if we want to think about it in, in the political moment that we're in right now, it's more naked than it has been at any other point. 
but this privileging of one group over all others has actually just been the consistent system that has been in place in Israel since its founding. I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And it's important to think about systems because, again, when people hear about supremacy and supremacism, they think about groups of men in the street chanting racist epithets. And of course, that is part of it, but that is an outgrowth of the systems um, that uphold these beliefs, codify them, institutionalize them, and set them up you know, to continue perpetuating themselves. So the new government is is just accelerating the framework, the institutions that were already in place that privileged Jews above all other groups in the country and explicitly and specifically above Palestinians. It's really important to get that historical context and to see this as part of a longer trajectory and not as some kind of anomaly or break that's just happened. We need to think about it in terms of acceleration, not in terms of innovation, in terms of the last you know, decade or so in Israeli politics. That ideological lineage is, is very, very longstanding. And then to expand out into other points of the far-right worldview that you mentioned, Lara, of course, you know, with, with any kind of ideology like this, with any kind of ideology of domination, it doesn't just stop at one category. If, if there's an ideology of ethnic domination or religious domination, it extends into racial domination, it extends into domination around gender, around compulsive heterosexuality, and all the rest of it. And we see different aspects of that happening in Israel. I don't want to transplant um, too much of the US culture war framework onto what Israeli society and politics look like, but maybe we'll get into this a little bit later. There is an, you know, a concerted efforts by US conservatives to transplant those culture war, you know, anti-woke, anti-expert, anti-intellectual, and so on, directly onto Israeli society with, you know, differing degrees of success. But one aspect I really do want to focus on is um, attacks on the LGBTQ community. Again, it's important to set this in its context. Same-sex marriage is not legal in Israel. Uh, it's not even on the table. Um, conversion therapy is legal in Israel. There were you know, so-called con conversion therapy, I should say. There were efforts to, to ban it with the last government, and that's, again, gone off the table now. Um, but there is a more explicit, focused effort to discriminate against and even persecute uh, the LGBTQ community that is, is bubbling up in Israel right now. The person I want to focus on the most is somebody called Avi Maoz. He's a member of the new government. He was the third party that ran with the Religious Zionist Party and Osme Yaudit. It's sort of a one-man band, but it's they have a very explicitly anti-LGBTQ agenda that basically is their party platform. Um, one of the co-founders of the party was involved in a separate group that a few years ago, put up huge homophobic billboards up and down the country, uh, basically demonizing um, queer people, saying that they, you know, they they don't make a family and so on and so forth. And Avi Maoz in this new government has been, he's a minister, a deputy minister in the prime minister's office, and he's been put in charge of external programming in Israeli schools. And just to put that in an American context, this is a little bit like having a member of the Westboro Baptist Church having some kind of say over what content uh, is, is put on in, in American schools. And the idea is just unthinkable, but that's what's happening right now. Thanks, Natasha. Um, MZ, I'd, I'd like to, to turn to you and, and, um, and, and, and sort of delve even deeper 
one of the one of the key agenda items of this new government is what it calls uh, judicial reform. Uh, the the judiciary has has become a major target uh, uh, for this uh, for this uh, ruling coalition, um, and and for a lot of supporters of of Israel in the U.S. Uh, as well as elsewhere are very concerned, uh, in particular about the targeting of the judiciary. Um, concerns that have to do with uh, you know, what it means for Israel's democracy, for the rule of law, the rights of its citizens, the rights of minorities or underprivileged uh, groups uh, that we've heard about. And, and we also heard uh, Shaul talk about how the one thing that is absent from the current protests against this government is the, is the occupation and the Palestinians. And yet a lot of people don't realize that um, a lot of the drive to target the judiciary actually is grounded in um, uh, objectives that have a lot to do with the Palestinians. Can, can you explain that for us? I'm really glad you asked this question because I think there's a lot of myths around this subject that really need to be debunked. And here I want to echo what Natasha was speaking about in terms of looking at the system. And in this case, now looking at the judiciary and its, and its role in the system. And despite the kind of political narrative around the idea that there's this clash between the Israeli judiciary and the Israeli government or the Knesset or the will of the people, you'll actually find historically that the judiciary overwhelmingly was, was and is synchronized with the Israeli government, its executive, its Knesset, all the policies that are ever put by. Uh, here I also want to echo something that Lara has long been talking about uh, regarding the rule of law versus rule by law. And Israel, from its very inception, has always been able to maintain its discriminatory rule or military rule, um, you know, both inside, inside the, the official state's borders and the occupied territories by the system of rule by law, the law justifying and legalizing a lot of these policies. Um, I can take you back from, to court rulings all the way from the 1950s, especially in regards to Palestinian citizens of the state, even before 1967 with the occupation. But just as an example, I think I remember that I recall there was one study, and uh, I'll try to look for the resource to, uh, to share with everyone. But they looked, for example, at uh, all the petitions that have been put that have been put forward to the Israeli Supreme Court between 1995 and 2015, as just like a case sample, and they saw, if I'm not mistaken, something like 90 percent of those petitions were actually dismissed, uh, the petitions against the state. So in other words, 90, if over 90% of the cases, the court sided with the state and allowed the state to pursue its policies. This is not just regarding to uh, uh, questions of the occupation or Palestinian citizens, it relates to many kinds of cases, but just shows again how much these uh, institutions tend to be aligned. Uh, and with this as well as the fact that many uh, judges, including Supreme Court judges over the past 20 years, have become explicitly more right-wing. And you see this in their court rulings. You see this in the decisions. The Supreme Court of today is nothing like the Supreme Court of the 1990s. And there's a lot to unpack in this as well, but it's just, just to point out that actually it tends to be aligned with, the, uh, with that executive and the legislative. Now, the reason why this th there's such a big uh, campaign now around this idea of the reform is as far as, as far as the right and the far right especially is concerned, this uh, these reforms are really about trying to remove any potential for pushback. Uh, in other words, it's it, on one level it's to erase even the the possibility of certain exceptions. So as I was saying, the court tends to actually um, 
approve many of the laws, the discriminatory uh, or occupation laws that have been passed even in the past uh, 10 years alone, but you get some exceptions such as uh, something called like the settlement regularization law. So a law that tried to kind of uh, blanket, legal, uh, retroactively legalize what are regarded as settlement outposts, uh, settlements that are even illegal under Israeli law. So the Supreme Court actually struck this law down. It's in no means that the court's against settlements. There's actually quite an entire infrastructure to legalize it. Uh, and it had very particular arguments as to why it struck down that particular law. But for the far right, even this kind of exception is unacceptable. They could easily go around it, but it's like, we don't even want that kind of pushback. Um, and tied with this is the fact that by being able to overhaul the judiciary and create a huge political influence for the judiciary, you're also just being able to hasten government policies. So there's a difference, for example, if a Palestinian village, whether it's in, inside Israel or in the occupied territories, uh, if they're on the threat of demolition and uh, families or the villagers are able to go to the courts, there's a difference in being able to have the legal process go eight to 10 years and to try to uh, create a bit of a fight and to kind of delay the government's plans versus just one year where there's either no judicial review or no serious judicial review that allows the government to uh, uh, implement its actions quite, quite quickly. So these are really the motives behind this. Uh, and it's a very serious issue. And uh, an eight-year legal case is different from a one-year legal case for those who are going to be victimized by the state. Um, but it, but it, that needs to be taken to its context. Uh, and the last point I'll just quickly make on this is that this judicial reform is itself a very deliberate reaction to legal resistance that has been building up, especially since the 1990s. So in the 90s, there were these uh, kind of there were these sort of uh, legal and judicial reforms that actually opened up the possibility for especially Palestinians in the occupied territories and Palestinian citizens to try to uh, use and engage in the Israeli courts to fight for their rights, whether for greater equality inside Israel or against certain kinds of government policies. Uh, this always existed to some extent, but it opened up a great deal. And for the right wing and for the Israeli right, the more that these challenges kind of kept on being pushed in the courts, and most of them, again, were quite were still approved on the, in favor of the state. But the fact that there could become exceptions, the fact that there were sometimes very specific rulings, individual rulings, really scared the right. And so this is why they, uh, from 2009 onwards, the, the Israeli right really focused a lot on passing as many discriminatory laws as they could. Uh, 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 the legal center that I used to work at, Adela, has documented dozens of these laws, and about half of them were passed since 2009 as an attempt to try to legalize policies that were being challenged uh, since the 90s. And now they're seeing that they want to try making sure that it's now that impunity is complete. So to even ensure that the Supreme Court and the district courts and the magistrate's courts, for whatever reason, will not be able to uh, even be, even allow any kind of pushback in that respect. So, the, but, but again, this fraction is still very, very crucial, but it should not erase from the fact that there's a wider system that's still at play and that the court is still an active, complicit part of an entire system that is still uh, deeply oppressing Palestinians on both sides of the green line. Thanks, Abjad. I, I think that it's really important that people understand the role, what you're saying, the role that, um, that the occupation settlements seeking to maintain Israel's impunity and Israel's ability to do all these things plays in the judicial reform efforts. Because, I mean, as people start talking about compromises that might come out that would allow the international community to stop being so angry, you know, if the protesters in the street basically fighting for 
their equities as Jewish Israelis, it's it's pretty easy to imagine a possibility of some sort of compromise where the only people <laughs> that are hurt are effectively Palestinians, and then that will effectively get people out of the streets. This is something that I I think people should really be watching for. It's it's the obvious place I think where this goes um, in the next um, months. Um, but these are the things that just keep me up at night. Shul, I want to come back to you and some of the stuff we were talking about before with, with Meyer Kahane and, and where we are today. You've written about the, the idea of grammar of race with respect to Kahane and, and, and how it relates to his efforts to promote Jewish pride. I want you to explain what that term means. And I want you to talk about your understanding of the role of race specifically for Kahane and his followers, including today. And, and if you can, can you talk about whether, and if so, how the same grammar of race is playing a role um, with this current government and its, its Kahanist members and, and more broadly in those who support them? Thanks, yes. Uh, well, the term itself, uh, I, I stole from uh, a Black Studies um, theorist named Frank Wilderson, who was the kind of founder of, of a movement within Black Studies called Afro-Pessimism. And, and what Wilderson means about grammar of race is he wants to make a distinction between um, what we call racism, because racism or accusing someone of racism is a kind of a conversation stopper. And then, you know, of course, I'm not racist, you are racist. And he says, the question is not racism. The question is how race is used within American society to cultivate and perpetuate a certain element of anti-blackness that, that, that whose roots go down to the very you know, founding of the country on, on some in some fundamental way. So one of the things that I, I wanted to do in my chapter on race in the Kahana book is um, is to really investigate what race means and how it's used within an Israeli context. Because a lot of people will say, well, the issue is not race in Israel. The issue was is two opposing nationalisms. So it's not about one race versus another. It's really about one national group that demand that has its own its own state and its own and is able to exercise self-determination and another national group that doesn't so they want to kind of separate the racial language that is so much a part of american discourse with with race in israel but of course kahana is ousted from the from the israeli parliament on a racism law in other words that the the government itself claimed that his policies were racist so what I tried to do is really thread a needle of saying the question isn't is Kahana racist or not Kahana racist. The question is how is race used in Israeli society to promote a certain element of discrimination. Now the interesting piece in Israel is that it's used not only between Israelis and between Israeli Jews and Palestinians, but it's used among Israelis themselves, whether it's uh, Israelis that come from North African backgrounds, or whether it's Israelis that come from Ethiopia, right? So that the racism is not just in 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 between those two things, but actually between white Ashkenazi Jews and Jews of color, or Jews from the from Arab lands, and then Palestinians. So I, I just want to give you one example that I think kind of captures it. There was a, a party that was founded in the early 1970s called the Israeli Black Panther Party. And the Israeli Black Panther Party was a group of Jews from Arab countries who were uh, basically modeling the Black Panther Party in America to fight against the Ashkenazi-centric 
government that was oppressing them and was persecuting them. And when Kahana comes to Israel, he sees that, oh, these Israeli Black Panthers, they can really be part of my base because I'm also against the kind of liberal, white, Ashkenazi government, and I'm trying to promote some other kind of um, Jewish pride, ethnocentrism. But what ended up happening is it kind of backfired because many of the Jews, some of the Jews, I should say, that were in the Israeli Black Panther Party also found themselves in solidarity with the Arab population. So you had a kind of a triangular, it became tri triangular where you have the, the Arab population, the Israeli population from Arab countries, and then the white Ashkenazi elite, and Kahana kind of got caught in the crossfire. So that, that kind of backfired because for Kahana, the notion of race, even though today we don't normally talk about Jews as a race, certainly in, until the 1930s, until the Nuremberg Laws, Jews spoke of themselves as a race and were spoken about as a race. Louis Brandeis speaks about Jews as a race all the time. So the language of race is not really used, but the grammar of race continues. And so it's really, there is a deep sense of racism that exists in Israeli society between the Israeli Jewish population and the Arab population, and then internal to the Jewish population between the Ethiopian Jews and the Jews from Arab countries and the Ashkenazim. Now, I will say that the, the internal racism has somewhat be, become diffused, largely because of intermarriage between Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahi or Sephardi Jews. So eventually the families become mixed together. That's not true within the Arab sector, right? So I'll give you just one example. When Kahana came to Israel in 1971, the first, one of the first pieces of legislation that he began to promote, he, he wasn't a Knesset member, he was, he was trying to launch his political career. Two pieces of legislation, the first to outlaw Jewish Arab dating. That was the first thing that he did. The second to forbid Jew, Jew, Israeli Jews from dating UN forces. And the third thing he did was to try to get a group of um, black Israelites who were living in the southern town of Demona, black Hebrews, to be expelled from the country. Now, what was so interesting about that moment is for Israelis that that it was like he dropped from Mars because the issue of Jewish Arab dating was not really a cultural issue and the Jews that were living, the, the black Israelites that were living in Demona didn't really matter. So you see in what the ways in which Kahana is kind of transporting an American racial context into Israel and, and that's how he fails. And that's why I think people like Ben Gvir and that whole other generation who, who, who come from Israeli society, they have, they have their ear to the ground and they know what matters. And as a result of right. which, they're more dangerous. Yeah, th thanks, uh, thanks, Shaul. Uh, Amjad, I, I, wanna, I wanna turn to you and, and, and ask you about uh, something that just came up earlier this week. Uh, the Knesset voted just a couple of days ago um, on, I guess it's the, uh, you know, one of the many readings that legislation uh, has to go through, but but I think it uh, was passed by a majority. Um, uh, and this legislation calls for revoking the citizenship uh, or residency rights of those who are uh, convicted of supporting terrorism in one form or another, um, which which in Israeli law is actually 
quite broad and can include things ranging from throwing stones to uh, even human rights advocacy or simply political affiliation because all Palestinian political factions are designated as terrorist groups um, and, and allows these people to be deported um, to, to the occupied territories, to the West Bank uh, or, or Gaza. Um, the law is widely seen as targeting Palestinian citizens of Israel, but also those uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem who have kind of conditional residency rights. They're not citizens, but they're resident aliens uh, uh, of Israel. Um, so how do you see, uh, you know, what the interesting thing also is that this law was passed, it was put forward by um, extremist elements in, in the Knesset, but it was adopted and voted for by the center and, and others uh, in, in the Knesset. Um, so it had broad support. So what do you see as behind uh, this law? Uh, what does it mean for Palestinians, uh, both citizens and uh, under occupation in, in East Jerusalem? Yeah, uh, so just to clarify on this particular law, so exactly as you said, um, it's, it's precise about revocation of citizenship and residency for uh, like alleged terrorist acts. And tied with that, specifically like this, plus the fact that, uh, uh, or the allegation that they received some kind of payment or stipend or salary, um, uh, not the exact wording, from the Palestinian Authority. So those two things are combined. It's the idea of opening this up to allow that revocation and exactly then uh, to, de uh, to deport to uh, Palestinian Authority controlled areas, so to speak. Now, this seems like, you know, at first glance, at first text, seems like a very specific law with very uh, particular criteria, um, but there's sort of like two levels to look at this. One is the, is the fact that, I mean, on one micro level, this law is kind of part of this wider idea that the Israeli government is trying to, uh, this narrative that it's trying to perpetuate of the idea that, um, uh, that this comes with like pay for slay that the idea that the Palestinian Authority pays Palestinians and rewards them for attacking Jewish Israelis, uh, and the idea that all all uh, Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails are there because of that. That is not the case, and it's quite a, a, a gross misrepresentation of what of how that operates, not, uh, as well as the fact that, you know, of money that is actually given is usually given to the families. If it does, if they do go to prisoners, it's for things like the canteens at the prisons of like very basic foods and it's families that are supporting it. And the same way that you would have like social services, even for your regular criminal prisoners for access for families to be able to provide money to inmates, regardless of what they did. And it's basically, it's, a, it's rather a very broad brushing of what, to, what is actually the case. Um, but this is, but, what I would want to emphasize is that this law shouldn't be taken on its own terms. The more important thing is actually what, where is this law in the larger legislative and, uh, and policy construct that is trying to broaden and legitimize the potential uh, um, stripping of citizenship and status and eventual deportation of Palestinians. So you cannot take this law on its own. You need to connect it with, and you're mentioning some of this, that there are other previous laws that already enable the government to revoke citizenship. Uh, and, the, and just a few years ago, for example, the Supreme Court actually approved uh, the ability to revoke uh, the citizenship uh, of, a pal uh, of, a, of an Israeli citizen based on quote unquote breach of loyalty. What does breach of loyalty mean? 
no one it could range from anything uh, they like to uh, they like to kind of portray it as like it's only about terror you know like the sort of terrorist or militant attacks but as we're seeing in the israeli political discourse the idea of breach of loyalty expands well beyond that and politically we've seen that applied in many in many respects even to the very fact that possibly me speaking here is regarded as a breach of loyalty because i'm crit criticizing the state um, and there are other kind of large infrastructures that already provide for this concept of breach of loyalty and what constitutes terrorism. So Khaled, you're right, like under the anti-terror law passed in 2016, something even as waving a Palestinian flag, which should technically not be illegal under Israeli law, can be, can be regarded as incitement to terrorism, can be regarded as something that's provocative, can be regarded as contributing and associating myself with a terrorist activity. Um, even more recently, uh, 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 you've had uh, some of you may have heard about the Palestinian human rights groups, uh, which are international law centers and advocating on human rights based on international law, and they have now been outlawed and designated as terrorist organizations. So, what does it mean if I go meet with uh, with an organization like Al Haq or Adamir, uh, who are like representing Palestinians and advocating to to international UN forums and so on and so forth? Does that also constitute a breach of loyalty and a an association with terrorism or participation in terrorism? And it's not, and it may seem like it's a bit um, like we're trying to uh, we're trying to kind of uh, make this bigger than it actually is. But it, you have to take this very seriously because the far right, whenever it does make these conflations, when it does have such a broad scope of what is terrorism, what constitutes loyalty, uh, it we've actually seen that with all these incremental laws they are now widening the path to be able to, for example, put, push Palestinians out uh, in, from occupied Jerusalem, for example, and slowly by slowly being able to do so also with citizens of Israel. And the very fact that this law, for example, talks about deporting uh, uh, you know, these kind of people who are stripped of citizenship and residency to the Palestinian Authority really shows that politically, the idea is to create, is to make the occupied territories basically a racial dumping ground for undesired citizens, for undesired residents. And the, uh, and the uh, Israeli uh, Knesset members who have been pushing this law, and many of the people who even on the kind of opposition are, uh, who voted for this law, are, ba are basically uh, passing this and saying, be being very explicit that this is a very racist law, that this is intended for Palestinians and not Jews. Thanks, Amjad. And that actually links very well to what I want to ask uh, Natasha to talk about, which is the normalizing of what was very much a, at the focus of Kahane's worldview, which is the idea that Palestinians are quote unquote enemies. And he was very big on policies that would quote unquote encourage them to leave, either leave Israel or leave the West Bank and Gaza, either by financial incentives or by various kind, various means of expulsion. And I, I want you to talk about how that's been normalized, not just in this current government, but really over time. I mean, the laws, the the the, the designation of the of the the NGOs that Amjad just mentioned happened under the previous government, right? The normalization of things like populated land transfers. I mean, that was part of the Trump plan. It was it was so normalized it was actually Im implied by the map in the Trump plan of the triangle, the Galilee being moved over. Um, so, can you talk about the mainstreaming of these positions, which? at their core really are about expulsion and, and, and trying to create a more ethnically pure Israel. Absolutely. And I want to distinguish between uh, mainstreaming rhetoric and mainstreaming action. Um, because in terms of the action of expulsion, it's been fairly consistent throughout 
Israel's history, there has always been some community, some Palestinian community that has been under threat of expulsion. This obviously coalesced more around times of instability and war when we've seen you know, mass displacement. Um, but even right now, as we speak, there are countless Palestinians in the occupied West Bank who face the imminent threat of expulsion. And for them, that knock at the door can come at any time. A bulldozer can come at any time to tear down their house. So expulsion as a, as you know, a, a fairly regular act by the military is is has been always been normalized um, to a degree. What, as you rightly point out, has has become more mainstreamed is expulsion, expulsionist rhetoric. And the idea of expulsion as policy, and this is something that Kahana definitely played a role in accelerating. You know, he, for him, expulsion had a value in of itself. It wasn't just something to be done under the cover of of war or, or you know civil conflict. It was, it was an end in of itself. It was part of his vision for what the future of a Jewish state should look like. You know, it had almost a spiritual uh, benefit for him as well as a demographic benefit. And so the the role that he played was to make it a topic of discussion as potential policy in a way that it hadn't really been before, again, as I said, except outside of the context of war. Um, and he's, you know, Kach, his party was not the only party that had it on their platform. There were others that that talked about it, but he his was really the, the most famous example. And he also shared very, very violent fantasies of how he would make that happen. You know, it was along with, you know, the you know potential financial uh, incentives to leave or, you know, just forcing Palestinians out. You know, in the mid 1980s, he, he gave a speech at a rally where he said, you know, one day Palestinians will turn on the radio and they will hear that Kahana has been made Ministry of Defense and they will come and uh, bow to me and lick my feet and I'll show them mercy and I'll let them leave and whoever doesn't leave will be slaughtered. Well, that never happened, but, you know, people turned on the radio and heard that his ideological progeny, Ben Gvir, had been put in charge of the police rather than the army. Um, in February 1990, when the first intifada was ongoing, Kahana said uh, to an audience uh, in California that, you know, if he was Minister of Defense, the intifada would be over within a week. He would ban all journalists from the West Bank. Then he would tell the Israeli army, you have two days to do what you need to do, and then the intifada would be over. So I want to connect the violence of Kahana's vision for expulsion to the fact that there are Kahanists in very, very important roles in the Israeli government today. And I'm not trying to suggest that this kind of activity is imminent, but I'm suggesting that it points very, very clearly to the growing acceptance of the idea of expulsion as policy and not just as kind of lower level consistent displacements that we've been seeing throughout uh, Israel's history. Um, th thanks, uh, thanks, Natasha. So, so we've talked about this process of, of normalizing or mainstreaming the extremists in Israeli society and politics. And, and I wanna turn now to, to you, Shaul, uh, uh, and, and, and ask you about, um, how these same groups and ideas have are being sort of normalized on this end of uh, on this side of uh, of the ocean as well. Um, so, for example, in in 2019, when Netanyahu first had the idea of of urging 
the uh, Kahanists uh, in, in Jewish power and the religious Zionist bloc to merge so that they could make the, the threshold uh, and, and join the Knesset. Um, there, was, there was a little bit of outrage uh, in the American Jewish community, certainly uh, uh, others, but, but even in even mainstream groups like, uh, like APAC. This time around, uh, in, in, uh, when elections were held in uh, late last year, uh, there was much less of an outcry. Um, and it was pretty much limited to American group, Jewish groups on the left. At the same time, um, we've seen how the Biden administration, many months before this election, I believe it was in May of 2022, um, decided to remove groups uh, like Kach and Kahanachai from the foreign terrorist organization list that the State Department uh, keeps. So these are groups that have been on that uh, have had that terrorist designation for, for many years. Um, and the Biden administration sort of unilaterally decided to remove them. Um, how does this apparent sort of mainstreaming in, in, in American politics um, uh, play into the dynamics that we're seeing uh, in, in Israel? Kali, that's a great question, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because, first of all, the role of the American Jewish, American Jewry, there's not a American Jewish community, obviously, a lot of communities, and, and also, the, and also the, uh, the administration is extremely, extremely important here. Starting with American Jewry, I think you're, you're right. American Jewry was, um, and, and American Jewry writ large, except for the, of the fairly small faction that are celebrating this present government. I mean, there are there is a faction of American Jews who actually are in favor of exactly what's happening in the government. But the large swath of American Jews are more or less liberal and, you know, democratic, although that's been shifting slowly over time. And I think I think I think there's a sense of paralysis. I think there was initially in 2019, as you said, there was a sense of outrage that the, the, the extremism that was being expressed in the Israeli political system was something that uh, Israeli Jews, let's call them liberal Zionists, for lack of a better term, were very, very upset about. But ultimately, um, it became normalized because as much as American Jews have their own set of values and their own vision of the, what they would like Israel to be, ultimately, they're going to support Israel, whatever it does. So I, I think that's kind of what happened. So after the election in 2022, you started to see all kinds of, you know, of backtracking and justifications for all kinds of things. And when the protests came, so the American Jews kind of signed on to the protests, but it's still, it's still, I, I, I feel like Ameri the American liberal Jewish community is really against the ropes. They really don't know what to do. And the, the only thing that is really deflecting from this, and this is, a, you know, a rabbi in New York said this to me, and I think it's a really important point. The way in which the liberal American community is able to deflect the anxiety of what's going on in Israel is changing the subject to anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism in America. That becomes the shield, right? So the more that, the more there are rising of, you know, acts of anti-Semitism in America, especially from the left, but not only, it doesn't really matter, the more that community doesn't have to talk about Israel. 
And I think that there is that sense in which the, um, the progressive left who are seen by many Jews, not necessarily correctly, but are seen by many Jews as participating in or enabling certain kinds of anti-Semitism, that simply gives justification for accepting this extremely extreme right-wing government. So that becomes the way in which I think American Jews are able to kind of deflect the anxiety of, oh, Israel is much less of a democracy than we actually think. So in 2018, the, 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 um, the law that was passed that said Israel is, the, is, Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and not necessarily the nation state of all of its citizens. American Jews didn't like that, but they accepted it. And one of the reasons I think is that anti-Semitism becomes that shield. In terms of the Biden administration, I really have no idea why they took Koch off of that list. I think there were probably all kinds of criteria that I'm not aware of. But I do think that the Obama administration, the Biden administration, speak nothing of the Trump administration. I really wonder um, if there is a red line. Now, what, what could happen where that the United States would start to act differently as opposed to saying, oh, we're concerned about this or we're against the settlements. I'm not really convinced that there is one. And I would say this, I would say this about, about American Jewry too. I once asked this kind of center-right American Jew, modern Orthodox Jew, what can Israel do that would withdraw your support? And, and he thought for a moment, and then he said to me, very honestly, nothing. Nothing. And I think that's, you know, I, I, I like to bring that anecdote because I think it's a moment of honesty, at least within the American Jew, Jewish pro-Israel community. There is nothing Israel can do that would withdraw support. In terms of the American government, I can't imagine that anyone would say that. But I wonder at what point in this process would the government be willing to act rather than speak about you know, we don't like this, we're concerned about this, and so on. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think I think the elasticity of the American-Israeli relationship is really being pulled to a, 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 an extreme. Thanks, Shaul. Um, I, I agree with you. The, the question of a red line, I think, is on a lot of our minds these days. Um, Natasha, I want to touch on a different piece of this, again, looking at the U.S. side of it. Um, and this is the, the role of actual American-born Jewish immigrants, Jewish funders, Jewish supporters on the growing illiberalism in Israel from the Kahane period to the present. Um, we've talked about Kahane. He was American. It's worth mentioning Brooke Goldstein, who was the, the terrorist who went into the Ibrahimi Mosque slash Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron in uh, 1994 and killed 29 Palestinians who were at prayer and wounded scores more. He was an American. Um, I mean, we have recently a bunch of reporting around the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is an Israeli uh, think tank, which is on the Israeli side of the divide, writing legislation to, to undermine the judiciary or to try to reform the judiciary. And on the U.S. side is actually involved in basically defending everything Israel does, including um, engagement from Kohelet folks on anti-BDS laws and the like. So there's clearly a crossover and the funding of that coming from the U.S. Can you, can you talk about all of that? 
Absolutely. I mean, I before I dive in, I, I want to add another name to your list, uh, who I think is, is an important person for, for people to be aware of, and he's not quite so well known as Kahana and Amber of Goldstein, but it's Yitzhak Ginsburg, who is an Ohio-born rabbi. He is the spiritual leader of the so-called Hilltop Youth in the West Bank, which is this kind of loose network of young extremist uh, fundamentalist Jews who really are, are behind some of the worst uh, settler violence that we've seen against Palestinians over the past decade. And in fact, one of their former members has just been sworn into the Knesset, uh, Tzvi Sukkot, uh, with the Religious Zionist Party. So yes, there is there is a very important role that American Jews have played both from within the US and after emigrating to Israel within the Israeli far right. I mean, to me, what you're seeing with quite a policy forum and other similar think tanks and institutions is just the latest iteration of a transnational relationship between the Jewish far rights in the United States and that in Israel that has stretched back across most of the 20th century. And I would say, you know, Kahana was sort of at the head of that movement while he was uh, while he was active. And then, you know, all the think tank, the parallel institution building that grew out of the neoconservative movement in the United States over the past few decades, you know, the, the think tanks, the media, even the educational institutions, you know, that's kind of the, um, I would say, the epicenter of this relationship now. And it's what's spearheading uh, part of what we talked about earlier in terms of trying to transplant U.S. culture wars onto onto Israel and, you know, bring in the obsession with gun control and, uh, you know, free speech that the far right believes is being censored as far as it's concerned. And, you know, the the fixation on gender and you know, trans rights and, and all the rest of it. So that's just the, the kind of more modern iteration of something that's actually been going on for decades and decades and decades. In terms of the role of American Jewish institutions, I think what happens when you have a Kahana or a Goldstein is that there is this exceptionalization that happens a bit like the Israeli government does, you know, in the wake of some of the more egregious acts of Jewish terrorism, which is just to say this bears no relation to us or our values whatsoever. This person is is alien to our community. We have nothing to do with them. And, you know, it's just forceful condemnation and disavowal. And I think that that really does a disservice of, of trying to figure out where these people come from, where they get their motivation from. And part of it ties back into what Shaul was saying about there being just a lack of red lines around what the Israeli government does. And there is an unwillingness to look at the connective tissue between the rights abuses that the Israeli government carries out and the permissive atmosphere that creates for people like Kahana and Goldstein and Ginsburg and Ben Gvir to kind of enact their violent fantasies against Palestinians and other non-dominant groups in the country. And just the final point I'll make is about the funding piece. Uh, There's been some reporting recently about quiet policy forum and and the, the kind of American Jewish you know, often GOP mega donors who are funding that institution and other institutions like it that are really driving forward a very hard right conservative agenda in both countries equally. Um, but we also need to look at the taxpayer setup. You know, it's tax return season right now in the US, and US taxpayers are subsidizing groups in both countries that provide material and legal aid to convicted Jewish terrorists. They're subsidizing fundamentalist religious groups that want to build a third Jewish temple in Jerusalem, where Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock currently stand. 
And they're subsidizing extremist institutions in the West Bank that foment extreme violence against Palestinians. Why are US taxpayer dollars and Israeli taxpayer dollars supporting these institutions? It's a really, really serious question. Yes, it is indeed. And uh, we are uh, really running uh, low on time. And so Amjad, I'm gonna, you're gonna have the last word. Um, I'm gonna, I'd like to, to ask you a question, but also give you a chance to, uh, to make any um, uh, points that you'd like to make. Uh, so the, 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 uh, the protests, the, the ongoing protests currently uh, in Israel uh, that we've seen over the past few weeks uh, has already come up. These protests are ostensibly organized around uh, defending Israeli democracy. Um, but, but that framing doesn't necessarily uh, tell the whole story. Um, tell us a little bit about what, how you see these protests, um, what they're about, what they're not about, who's participating in them, um, and, and what do they say about uh, where Israeli democracy uh, is uh, or, or is headed um, or has been, and uh, what does it say specifically also for uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel? Um, how do they fit into this picture, who it, it will be recalled? Um, not too long ago, uh, actually, were part of uh, the the ruling coalition uh, in the previous government. Um, so, so give us your your final thoughts on that, please. Uh, so, my words will be rather harsh about this protest movement, uh, and again, it's just having to take a bit of a sobering look at what is actually going on on the ground. So, coming back to um, how we began this conversation about talking about Israeli society and Israeli politics right now being very much a fight within the right and this kind of um, deepening fault line between the kind of secular liberal right as they define themselves and the, uh, and the religious illiberal right. This is still a big part of the battle. I mean, on the streets right now and the politicians who are in opposition to this, they are from the center right uh, to, and even former Likud members, for example, or people who are part of Likud who don't like their religious trajectory going all the way down to uh, the, the Zionist left. And it's a very large and quite impressive movement, to be honest, but it is still within that, like it's still around most of that fault line. But more significantly, it is, and again, I, have to, I hate to have to say it like this, but a large uh, chunk of this protest movement is still wrapped around and based off of a myth, still based off of this myth of the Israeli judiciary and the idea of the Israeli system being inherently democratic and that the, the far-right government is somehow about to erase that. The ones who know that this is a myth are actually Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens of Israel. It is Palestinian citizens of Israel who have experienced the Israeli judicial system because it determines whether or not they can construct the house for their, for their family or after they get married or for their children or to expand out of their towns. It is the Israeli judicial system that determined that uh, they can't express certain kinds of political views or identities or even talk about uh, the Nekbi or the catastrophe of 1948 on college campuses. It is Palestinian citizens who know that the Supreme Court actually okayed consecutively laws that banned them from marrying a fellow Palestinian from the occupied territories, from the West Bank or Gaza or even other parts of the Arab world. So Palestinian citizens know that this idea that the judiciary was this kind of vanguard of Israeli democracy and human rights and equality is entirely a myth. And it's not to say again that the far right's plans aren't dangerous, but it is a question of like, what is this protest movement asking for? It is asking for the status quo ante. It is asking for things to be the way it is, to maintain this veneer 
of a democratic system, of judicial review and judicial, judicial process, even if it achieves the same goal. And again, there are definitely shades of difference, important shades of difference between the, the far right's vision and this kind of center right to center left vision. But for Palestinians, uh, that, you know, it's not enough just to kind of ask for what the situation was like before. And this is where I have to kind of really want to compel, you know, my, our American viewers, whether in Congress and the political sphere and media and in the public, to understand that even if these judicial reform plans are, are blocked, even if you no longer have this kind of composition of the far-right government, even if you get a center-right, centrist type government, you are still dealing with an Israeli, an Israeli society and Israeli political spectrum that's very right-wing, and more importantly, that is still overseeing, still maintaining, still desiring a singular regime between the Mediterranean uh, Sea and the Jordan River that is maintaining what is effectively a form of apartheid uh, from the river to the sea that is ensuring uh, Jewish privilege, if not Jewish supremacy throughout those territories, maintaining military rule over Palestinians, and that sees this system as the correct way to sort of address the conflict. It is the correct way to maintain their security and maintain their privilege and to maintain the Jewish state. This apartheid reality, this singular apartheid reality is now the norm. And the question for Americans from Congress all the way onwards is to ask, even if you have, even if this protest movement succeeds, you're still facing that same challenging reality that is not providing democracy, that is not providing human rights, and that is trying to ensure this kind of discriminatory regime uh, throughout. And this is still the fundamental question that needs to be dealt with even the day after this government. Thank you, Amjad. That's a great place to leave this. And I, I wanna congratulate all of us that we only went seven minutes over. Um, I think we could have gone on for at least another hour or two. Um, so we're gonna end it here. On, on behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute, I wanna thank our participants, Amjad, Natasha, and Shaul. Thank you so much for an enlightening, if perhaps a little bit disturbing discussion. Uh, so with that, we'll sign off and thank you all very much. Mm -hmm.